Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. On this episode, we're talking 529 education savings plans. You don't have to be able to put $5,000 in. You could take $10 a week. Put the money in a 529 account. Do it slowly. 10 bucks a week. You know, just get on an automatic plan because... When a family gets in the regular habit of saving and they understand the importance of this for their child's future, they'll do it. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest online financial advisor. Well, we are just coming into the month of June and the end of May was very exciting for a nerd like me because... It was 529. May 29th was 529 day. That is a day that should be marked for anyone who is saving for education. 529 plans, right? A 529 plan is an education savings account, which is operated by individual states. So we thought in honor of 529 day and 529 plans and lots of college and high school graduations, education's top of mind, we would get a 529 plan expert. So we invited Andrea Fierstein, who founded AKF Consulting Group in 2002 to address the growing need in the college savings marketplace. So she's kind of the expert because she helps create these plans for the states and understands the nuances of them. So in this interview, you're going to learn about what these plans do and don't do, the big changes this year that are now in place, as well as resources that you can check out. Without further ado, here's our interview with Andrea Fierstein. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, we are recording an interview on May 29th, fondly known to those of us in the know as 529 Day. And in honor of it being 529 Day, we have a 529 education savings plan expert. Her name is Andrea Fierstein. She is the founder of AKF Consulting Group, and she has immersed herself in the college savings marketplace. You are now the the go-to source for unbiased expert advice on all aspects of 529 plan design and administration. But you happen to know a little bit about the people who use the plans, right? I do. I think that I do. Welcome to the show, Andrea. How are you? I'm great, Jill. Thank you for having me. So here's how we start every program. It's It's a finance program, personal finance. Yep. Best financial decision you've ever made? Wow, that's a really good question. Best financial decision I ever made was probably to put myself through law school, interestingly enough. At the Um, University of Virginia, fancy pants. At UVA, yeah. Used to have a good basketball team. But um, I think the next best financial decision I've made, and I'm really proud of it, is that I've funded 529 accounts for a lot of people's children. Really? Do you yeah. have kids yourself? I do. I have two kids. And are they college age? Or are they? My second one is graduating from college next week. Wow. Fully funded on a 529 account and my daughter as well. But I also am very lucky because I have a, a an in-law who never went to college who fully funded the 529 accounts for eight grandchildren. Oh, my gosh. That's wonderful. You know, it's funny. When I was a financial planner 100 years ago, And I remember, when did a 529 plan become available? Was it in the late 90s? 
Yeah, the 529s as we know them today right? in it, the late 90s, 1997 Tax Act. So I remember this happening, and the first application that we had for it was taking wealthy clients mm-hmm. and saying, here's a great way to give away a ton of money and fund education at the same time. So that was like the first iteration that we were dealing with the older people, and then people started using them to accumulate. At the time... I have to say, I thought they were such a great deal that there would be no way that they could continue. How did you experience the 529 plan landscape? How did you get involved in this? So interesting. So I um, come from a municipal background, and a number of my clients in the late 90s were starting 529 plans. So people like treasurers of states. Um, and they would come to me and they would say, can you help us? I was at Smith Barney at the time, and I, I didn't know the first thing about asset management. But the firm finally decided that they wanted to get involved in this field. They had to do it because people, you know, professional financial advisors needed to help their clients use this brand new product. So I started the 529 business for Smith Barney and Citigroup. At that time, a state comes to you and mm-hmm. says, we want to construct a plan. But you're working for Smith Barney, which is a cumbersome, expensive money Correct. manager. What could you offer a state? Well, what we offered a state was the ability to really provide the entire plan. So to do record keeping, investments, advertising, marketing, really helped a great deal with outreach and and trying to get the message out across, admittedly, what you're saying, you know, this more affluent um, population who use Smith Barney for financial advice. Uh But the states learned early on that what they could do with firms like ours was say, we'll give you the ability to sell your product through your brokers, but you also need to make the effort to sell the product directly to the public. And that was a real departure for firms like Smith Barney and Merrill Lynch, for example. But the states really came to demand that and to expect it. And today, when we look at where the market is, Jill, there are 90 plans offered across the country, Mm. 90 different plans. 60 of them are offered directly to the public. 30 are offered through financial advisors. We're going to get to that in a second because I'm very bearish on that 30. Okay. Because I feel like it's a complete waste of money. But I'll get to that in a second. And the market's proved you out on that. I know, right? In a little bit of a way, yes. So let's start with the basic construct of a 529. Formed in the late 90s out of the, I guess there were prepaid tuition plans always, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, it was the states that recognized first the real need to help American families save for tuition that was just increasing at astronomical rates in the late 80s. So you saw states like Michigan, Kentucky, Florida create these prepaid plans in the late 80s. It was those states that really led the way for, interestingly enough, Senators Graham and McConnell to jointly sponsor Section 529 in 1996. So the plan is created, and Mm -hmm. essentially you can put money in. Correct. It grows without current taxation at the federal or the state level. Right. And when you take the money out, presuming that it's for what's called a qualified educational expense, Mm -hmm. There's no tax on all the accumulation. That's correct. And uh, the only whacking penalty you get is if you don't use like, oh, well, my kid Mark got a four-year cello scholarship and I have no other kids, 
So now in that case, I get whacked with a 10% penalty on money coming out? Actually, in that case, you don't, Jill. If you're lucky enough that your child has that cello scholarship, you won't pay the 10% penalty on the earnings. In fact, if your child, if unfortunately something happens, if he dies or becomes disabled or wins a scholarship or goes to one of the U.S. military academies, you're exempt from the 10% penalty on earnings. You will pay income on the earnings. Right, because then you... But it's penalty-free. So the only penalty that is levied is if you just yank it for no reason. Like you needed the money. Correct. Okay. Correct. But one of the things, in a way, the offset to that is sometimes people are scared. If they put money in, they'll never be able to get it back. For example, traditionally, people would you know, give new newborns a check, right? Or bar mitzvah, you get a check. Confirmation, right. you get a check. When that check is written to the child, it's that child's money. You can't take it back. You set up an account, we call those UGMA accounts, Uniform Gift to Minors. That account, it belongs to them. If that child decides they don't want to go to college, it's their money. They yep. can go off to the 18, circus. big time. The incredible thing about 529 is that the account owner always has the right to take the money back. And that gives comfort to a lot of people. It gives comfort to grandparents, for example, who, if one grandchild doesn't go, you can shift the beneficiary to another one, or you know, you can you can take that money back okay. in the event of an emergency. So let's just play that out for a second. So I'm a grandparent, you're my granddaughter, and I put the money away for you. And can I move the money between, say, a different family like cousins or does it have to so you can do it among the whole next generation correct pool of possible okay correct it's a very broad definition of member of the family okay so now there's a couple of extra benefits some states like the great empire state of new york where we are sitting right now will offer a state income tax incentive That's correct. How many of the states will do that? 35 states. Wow. Including the District of Columbia. But that tells you something. That tells you that those states recognize as a policy that this is something we want to encourage people to do. Even if your state does not actually offer a state income tax deduction, like I don't think California does, right? It does not. Nor does Texas. So you live in California, you live in Texas, you're listening to this. You don't have to use your plan that of that state as long as it's not the prepaid tuition one. If it's if it's the college savings plan, then you can go to any other state. Correct. And there's no residency requirement. That's correct. And there's no restriction on where your kid could go to school. That is absolutely correct. But can I add one thing? Sure. Just, just for those listeners in yeah. California and Texas, I would tell them, even though you don't get a state tax benefit... Look at your state plan because there may be other benefits. For example, you may get protection in bankruptcy from creditors. Your account may be protected within that state. Your account may be exempt from financial aid considerations by the financial aid entity in your state. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Another good example, which is sort of a fun one, New Jersey. If you've saved for five years in the New Jersey plan, you may be eligible for a $500 scholarship from the state of New Jersey. It's really worth it, even if there's not a straight tax deduction or tax credit, it's worth it to always start with your home state first. Do you still do consulting for all these different states? You're doing for the administration side. So I can't have you trash a plan from a state because it could be a client, right? It could be. Okay, let me tell you, uh, let me do it then. (laughs) But give me the story. Okay. So 
there I am. I was uh, with friends of mine who uh, had young kids, and the husband says to me, oh, this is probably in early 2000s. Oh, my guy at da-da-da investment right. firm right. told me to invest in a 529 plan. What do you think? I said, oh, I love them. So great. Fantastic. It's a New York State resident. Mm-hmm. I said, so great. Fantastic. I said, uh, so you know about the state income tax deduction? And he said, what? Yeah. And I said, the state income tax deduction. He said, how could I get a state income tax deduction? I didn't know about that. I said, wait a second. What plan are you invested in? He said, I'm invested in the Rhode Island plan. Now, I happen to have done business in Rhode Island, and I knew for a fact that plan sucked. And it was a terrible, <laughs> it, I mean, like the, all 529s are great. So all things being equal, if you had to just do nothing or be in a crappy plan, you're probably better off in a crappy plan. But the Rhode Island plan did suck at in the time. In its prior version. It's a new it, plan okay, today. So it was an old plan. <laughs> to its credit. And it was, uh, I can't remember who was the investing house, but it was terrible. And it was very expensive. And so there were two levels of fees that this guy paid for. Mm-hmm. One was he had to pay higher ongoing expenses, but he also bought it through his uh, broker Mm -hmm. who charged a commission. Right. And guess what? He didn't get the state income tax deduction because he had purchased a Rhode Island plan. Unforgivable. Right? Yes, absolutely unforgivable. So that's the kind of thing that makes me insane. Mm -hmm. And what I really have been preaching on this show is when it's all possible, please, number one, Take advantage of whatever state plan you have. As you said, there are many advantages, more than I even knew about. And number two, try to go direct because there is no real benefit. I mean, I get that some people would say like, oh, I just want my guy to do it. I just want my gal to do it. I just Mm -hmm. want like I don't Mm want to actually. But in essence, it's just not that hard to open up an account. One of the greatest misconceptions about 529 is that it's so complicated and I don't understand investments. I really, you know, I don't know where to begin. And it's kind of like a deer in the headlights a little bit. But the reality is, Jill, the most, the greatest thing that I see from the landscape perspective when you talk about where I began and where we are now, in the early 2000s, I would tell you probably till about mid 2000, 60, maybe 70% of the assets and accounts were sold through brokers, Mm -hmm. selling plans just like the one in Rhode Island to people who were living in New York, forsaking a $10,000 tax deduction for a married couple in New York, one of the highest tax rate states in the country. But something started to shift. And when we look at at the change, the direct sold programs became simpler to understand we most of the direct sold programs moved away from active investment management to indexed funds, Vanguard indexed funds. Mm-hmm. So what did that do? It lowered costs. It made it simpler for people to understand. And people felt comfortable. Who doesn't feel comfortable with Vanguard, America's brand? Not trying to sell Vanguard for you, but that's what we saw. So you saw this lowering of the fees, this simplifying of the options. And lo and behold, by about 2012, more than 50% of the assets and accounts in this country today are in direct sold plans. In your estimation, because you're both a parent and an yes. advisor, what are the good resources that people can use to try to compare these plans? I'm, for example, if I live in New York, I'm going to get a plan and, and it's a directly sold plan. I'm not right. going to have that many options. But right. for someone who doesn't have a state mm-hmm. income tax deduction or doesn't have great benefits, how do I look at 
the costs and the options and the fees? Sure. How, what's a good place to go? Sure. So there are two resources that I think of. One of them is um, the College Savings Plans Network. Actually, it's collegesavings.org. Mm-hmm. You know, that is the association of all of the plans in the country and all the plan administrators and the providers. And they have a comparative tool on their website that you can compare features. And, you know, you can look at your plan in your state and then pick a number of other plans. Savingforcollege.com is always a go-to source. Mm-hmm. But I would I would look at theirs. They have a very good comparative tool. But then I would go look at the underlying documents and just make sure. that Because that's fun. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. That's when you, so awesome. When you can't sleep at night. Right. And I'm worried anyway about my life. Yeah. This is a good time to do it, right? Exactly. And, you know, interestingly enough, and you've pointed this out in the past, I think, FINRA you know, um, the regulator for broker dealers around the country actually has a comparative tool. And if you you really want to get into the weeds, you could go to the SEC website as well. But I mean, what, stay what could, away from that. What could be more fun than that? So as you look at this, we have the plans themselves, the state level plans. Can, what if you do live in a place where you can do prepaid tuition? My mm-hmm. my high school boyfriend, John, lives in Florida and he did one of these prepaid tuition oh, plans. Yeah. He's so psyched. He's the like, mother oh of all plans. He literally yeah. said to me, it's the best thing that ever happened right. to me. Can you explain what some of those plans are sure. like and how they work? Sure. The First of all, there are only 12 prepaid plans that are open um, to the public. 11 of those are run by states. But one of them, interestingly enough, is run by a consortium of about 285 private colleges. Really? So it's a private college option, which is kind of interesting because mm-hmm. I look at the breadth of universities and institutions in that uh, plan and my goodness there's got to be a school for somebody in there if you you know if you if you want to prepay a tuition plan so I mean the schools range for example from Duke to Princeton to um, I think it's WashU may also be a part of it. Which but, is I mean, very problematic because no one can get into these Well, schools. that's true, too. I acknowledge that. But it's it's hopeful. It's aspirational. Yes. So we want to think that our two-year-old is going to go there. So that's an interesting one. But going back to the state ones, which is what you asked about initially, 11 states run plans. The downside, let me start with the downside, okay. not wanting to be negative. Okay. Um, the downside is if you're child doesn't go to one of the schools in your state, you can get your money back, but you may lose the benefit of the bargain. What you're counting on when you go to the university, you know, you enroll in the Florida plan is that if your child goes to the University of Florida, Florida State, or any number of public institutions in that state, your tuition bill is covered. You know, you've you've prepaid it, you're done. If you don't go, then you're going to get a redemption value, like a refund value. Mm. Every state calls it a different thing just for yucks to make it easy to understand all of them. And you have to understand what that's going to be. So, for example, in the state of Virginia, fabulous public schools. If you take your money out of your prepaid plan, you're going to get back a commercially reasonable rate of return, Mm. which is often a money market rate of return. Oh. You pull your money, you decide not to go to one of those private institutions in the private college plan, you'll either get 2% earnings or or 2% loss in earnings. There's a a up to, down to cap Mm -hmm. on what you get. So what I always say to people is if you have great public schools in your state, it is a fabulous option. But just beware that you may not, if your child is lucky enough to get out and go to Duke or Harvard or Mm. wherever it is, 
you're not going to get the full tuition equivalent of what you might have gotten at that great state school. Interesting. You're going to get some value. And as I said, it drives me a little crazy. Every one of these plans defines it differently. There's a nuance to every plan. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Andrea Fierstein in just a minute. You know, when you're thinking about your overall financial life, I know that we're talking about saving for college right now, but I am one of those people who really does believe that it's more important for you to be focusing on the goal of retirement than education. I mean, if you can do both, great. But just in case, just in case you're not sure and you're looking for some guidance, maybe you want to check out our sponsor, Betterment, the largest online financial advisor. Betterment's mission is to help their customers make the most of their money. How do they do that? They take lots of complex investing strategies and use technology to make those strategies more efficient. If you really don't know what should be coming first, education, retirement, paying down debt, they have access to unlimited personalized advice from licensed experts. You are a better off listener. And that means you can get up to one year managed free at Betterment. All you have to do is visit Betterment.com slash better off. That's Betterment.com slash better off. And now back to our interview with Andrea Fierstein. Let's get into a little bit of some of the changes that have occurred after we had tax overhaul or tax changes, I should say. As of 2018, you can now pull up to $10,000 a year out for K through 12, private, parochial, charter school, some whatever the expenses are that are qualified. Was this a surprising development that you saw? Yes, I would have to say that it was. Um, And I also want to be clear that it is tuition only. So what's interesting, you know, there's another um, savings vehicle out there, which I know you've talked about in the past, Coverdell accounts. Mm -hmm. You could use a Coverdell account. You could always use a Coverdell for K through 12 expenses beyond just tuition. It could be for uniforms. It could be for books, books, for transportation. But you can only put two grand in a year? Only two grand in, and there's an income limitation. So interestingly enough, what they've done now is they've said in 529, you can go to 10,000, which is way more than you could do on the Coverdell. No income limit, but it's tuition only. Now, here's the, here's the nab about it, though. Not every state has agreed to recognize it. Yeah, what's it. up with that? Yeah. I, I don't get that. So so um, has New York agreed to? Or they no? have not. Okay, so you're in New York, and before you pull that money out yeah. to pay for Spence or Chapin or wherever you're sending your yes. lovely lady, your lady child, what do you do? Should you just not, don't do it? Well, I think I would um, probably call the state program and ask them what they'll do, because what's going to happen, your earnings, you have a right to take it out from a federal tax perspective. Nobody can tax the earnings on on that withdrawal when you take it out. But it's the state that's going to differ. And what the state of New York has said is we haven't decided what we're doing. It's we're not going to treat it as qualified. So. The other complication in a state like New York, as we talked about the New York tax benefit, is that in those 35 states that offer tax benefits, usually if you make a non-qualified withdrawal, mm-hmm. you have to realize that withdrawal as ordinary income. Oh. 
So a little unclear here in New York, given that it's not qualified, if you take that money out and you you put it in and took a state tax deduction when you put it in. Not good. You're going to have to recapture good. that. That's so, interesting. You know, it's it's really a policy issue, though, I think. And but will you, So you're probably plugged in with all these people. And uh, <laughs> so do you think the trend will be for them to piggyback onto the federal rules? You know, it depends on how vocal the public is. Mm-hmm. I really think that's what it'll be. I think the states that haven't haven't embraced it yet or holding back because of the potential hit on the tax base, right? Like Illinois, Iowa, New York, big hit on, it's a big tax expenditure. Mm -hmm. If you think people are going to start putting money in like December 31st to take the tax deduction and then yanking it out January 5th to pay the tuition bill, right? Right, right. You've lost a lot of money. The other interesting issue is that Congress, I think, has not is not done with this yet. Really? Yeah. One of the funny twists and turns in the November and December tax overhaul was that there was an effort to include homeschooling. I know. That was a Ted Cruz part. Yes. And then they dissed him at the last second. <laughs> they dissed him on a, on a procedural issue. Right, right. Which says to me, it's not gone yet. It says to me, it'll be back. And, and I think that that's something that we have to just be aware of. And so there may be more pressure on these states. But you still think this is a great plan to use regardless of whether you get your state income tax deduction or not. My Although goodness. my sister's like, oh my God, thank God all of our stuff is, do- the kids are gone. <laughs> we got it. So I was on um, a, a network and uh, an anchor said to me, you always extol like how great these are. You write about it, you talk right. about it, but isn't this really just a gift to rich people? What's your answer to that, Andrea? Come up with a good answer for me. Oh, you know, I think there's a perception that it is a tool for affluent people. But here's what I would say. I would say that the states have made a real concerted effort to do a outreach to middle and lower income Americans. Now, lower income Americans, you know, are still struggling with how to put food on the table and pay their rent. And I recognize that. But there's an aspirational component to it. So what we see is that we see a number of states or cities or towns creating child savings accounts, right? Child development accounts, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful thing for that lower income bracket because it gets it sort of puts them into the thinking of why you save for college. For middle income Americans, I think that the states are trying to do matching grants. They're trying to do programs that incentivize you and really are very aware of the need to get the message out because that's the bulk of people that we need to start to save to understand that you don't have to save a lot. You don't have to save. You don't have to be able to put $5,000 in. You could take $10 a week. Put the money in a 529 account. Do it slowly. 10 bucks a week. You know, just get on an automatic plan. And that's what I think the message is that's coming from the direct plans. They're trying to get that message across because one of the things we see is that when a child knows there's money there to go to college... They think differently about mm. it. When a family gets in the regular habit of saving and they understand the importance of this for their child's future, they'll do it. So I think I think there's a broad outreach to that middle income bracket. And I think as we start to hit that bracket, you know, more, penetrate it more, we're going to see people relying less on student loans in young children in America having a better future overall. Let's get to the 
point which I think came up sort of as you were discussing that, which is the cost of school and how crazy it has become. So let's say Georgetown, your alma mater. Mm -hmm. It costs a lot of money to go to Georgetown. But if you make below a certain amount of money as a family, you're going to get money to go there. That's correct. Okay, so this is what all of my friends at my alma mater will say to me. is like, you know what? You make less than 200 grand a year. You come into Brown for free. Mm -hmm. That's the deal. That's right. So I'm almost less concerned with the most elite. But if you go down a couple of tiers, that isn't the case. Right. That's where, you know, Mark has a complete meltdown when we get calls from people who are like, I have $200,000 in student loan debt. And he's like, why? Why are they doing that? And you find that they'll often be doing that for institutions that don't have huge endowments. Correct. What do you see that will shift that trend? That's a tough one, Jill. I actually think that, you know, we're seeing it at the margin, universities that are having a tough time, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the number of universities, small schools that have talked about closing down. I don't know if I have an answer for you, Jill, what the right approach is. I think that, you know, it's interesting. We do talk about um, the cost of college. You know, you say Georgetown Brown, sixty, $65,000 a year mm-hmm. for each of those institutions right now. So you're looking at a $250,000 ticket. The reality is because of the use of endowments and the scholarship money, the net tuition price is lower. We still have that sticker shock. We still have, you know, a high cost of education. And I'm I'm not sure I know what the solution is. I think you have to be realistic about what you think your earning potential is. Because I think the problem, the burden of student loan debt is that most people end up paying it off until they're in their, you know, don't pay it off until they're in their mid-40s. Right. And if you think about it, think about all the major life decisions you make before you're 45. Right. Kids, a home, retirement, maybe, you know, I, I don't know, private school education. For your or kids even just or like a career, like you career. say, I have, a, I have a job now, it's solid. There's a better job here, but there's risk associated with it. Right. Maybe I wouldn't do that because I'm scared. Or maybe you go for the big dollar job, but then you end up wanting to do something that's going to pay you less. Work on a political campaign, right. work in the public sector, work in the non-for-profit sector. If you have this cloud over you of student loans, it it impedes your ability to make pure decisions, I right. think. And it and really, I think the downside, you know, is that it, it may force you to delay choices that you would otherwise make for the benefit of your whole life. Mm. And actually, I would tell you that when I do talk to groups of people, groups of individuals, while I spend a lot of time talking to administrators, I get out and talk to people who really use the end product. And what I tell people is that you have to look at it like a pie, and there's a lot of different slices. So yeah, there is a there's a role for student loans if that's going to make the difference. Right. It's just we don't want the whole pie to be student loans. So maybe there's, you know, gifts that your child has received and a little bit in 529s and a little bit from current income and a little bit from student loans cuz it's it takes a lot of pieces of the pie to make a whole, right? And so... I think I'm hearing a little Southern twang, and I like yeah, it. That's that UVA I do like thing. that. Uh, before we leave you with your final question, tell me about what is an ABLE 
529? Oh, good question. So an ABLE account, it stands for Achieving a Better Life Experience. It's actually Section 529, capital A Mm -hmm. of the code. So it's it's one after 529. It originally was supposed to be part of 529 in Congress, and its wisdom said we're going to make it a separate section. Anyway, it operates exactly like a 529. You um, earnings will grow tax deferred. Earnings are tax free when you take it out and use them for qualified uh, disability expenses. It is created for people with disabilities. And what it is, is that it gives you the ability if you receive public government funding, it gives you the ability for the first time in your life to collect or amass up to $100,000 in assets Mm. without jeopardizing those social security benefits that's the key to to able and so that would obviate the need for some people of like that special needs trust that people will would establish sometimes yeah i mean i think you still have that special needs okay. trust that's out there probably for the long run right um, right but what it enables kids to do or people with disabilities to do is it enables them to have a job to have assets to mm-hmm. Side story, the first account opened in the country was opened by a young woman with Down syndrome in Ohio. We advised the state of Ohio, first plan out in the country. And what the young lady said and her dad said is that for the first time, my daughter will be able to have a job. She will feel empowered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so so for people with disabilities who receive Social Security benefits, you could never do that before because there's a strict asset test. Right, right, right. So what Congress did is they said, we're going to let you save $100,000, you know, for the first time without jeopardizing those benefits. So a couple of downsides to ABLE is that um, the disability had to be diagnosed by the time you were 26. So that cuts out a fair number of people you know, traumatic injuries, potential military people. So the industry is fighting to get that change to 46. Mm -hmm. You can only have one ABLE account. So um, unlike 529s where a kid could have many accounts, you can only have one ABLE account. Um, And you can only put $15,000 a year in it. But just the same, the initiative itself is such a significant initiative for this very compelling set of beneficiaries mm. in America. So that's a good story it's about this. It's a good this. story, yeah. I forgot to ask you one other question. Yes. Let me just go back. You can put more than the annual gift Correct. limit into a 529 Correct. plan. Can you explain that? Sure. And and actually, when you referred to your early days in 529, where it was for wealthy people, that was one of the things that was promoted by a lot of financial advisors. 529 plans are the only vehicle that I know of where you can gift up to five years of gifts at one time. Today, where the you know, you can gift $15,000 or 30000 as a married couple, you can actually give up to $150,000 as a married couple. And um, the only thing is you can't give, you have to amortize that over five years. So the next five years, you will not be able to give a gift above that level. That's just an amazing piece of it. It's an amazing piece of it. And it's what really attracted the big financial advisory firms originally because they thought this is a great wealth transfer tool. It's an estate planning tool. It also goes back and reaffirms that concept that this is something that's geared to wealthy people. But when you think about it, let's say you're a young couple, you know, you you come into a windfall. 
not just that you're the investment banker who gets a $200,000 bonus, but maybe someone passes away and you receive some money through a disposition of a will. You can just put that money away and it gives you a little bit of an ability to catch up if you mm-hmm. haven't started saving. So it's something we talk about less now in our effort to try to make this something that's more accessible and understandable. And also since the estate tax limit changed on a federal level. Although, like, look, if you live in Massachusetts and it's a million dollars at the state level, it's still not a bad thing to do. That's right. We started the program and I asked you your best financial decision. What was your worst financial decision, finance queen? Oh, my God. I I kept an AOL account that charged me $20 a month for seven years and never realized it. (laughs) That was really stupid. I I did something stupid recently. (laughs) I I was doing construction on a home and I forgot to turn my cable off while I was doing the construction. So that was pretty stupid. And my builder was like, what kind of idiot does that? I was like raising my hand. I'm like, oh, I did that. Yeah. Well, I will also tell you I left... um, I left money in one of my kids' accounts, my 529 account. I mean, I never advised my mother-in-law to change it to uh, something less than 100% equity. And both my kids are through college, and so that was not necessarily the smartest thing. So I always say to people, do as I say, not as I do. I know. (laughs) Well, I can't thank you enough. Happy 529 Day, Andrea Fierstein. You are fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. Thanks so much to Andrea Fierstein. Don't forget, we drop new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the award-winning executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.